or your smartphone or whatever, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. Uh, We'll be back in Exodus, um, if you want to start in Exodus 28. Um, So, like I said, we have been in Exodus for a while now. Um, It's been about five and a half months, and we, most of that was spent in the first 20 chapters, and it feels like we're kind of blitzing the last um, 20 chapters. Um, Last week, we looked at three chapters. That's really kind of unusual for us. This morning, we're going to be looking at four chapters, Um, so maybe it's not as unusual. (laughs) Um, We're doing this um, because this section of Exodus is rich, but it's it's detailed, um, and some of that detail is using um, units of measurement that we're not used to. It's using words that we're not used to. Um, it's doing a lot of describing, um, and so last week was a lot of description of buildings. This week is a lot of description of clothing, and if we're not careful, we can kind of miss, um, miss the force. We can miss what's really going on because we get so bogged down in all the details. And so what we're going to do is, is really kind of look at it in a, in a larger, broader picture this morning. We're not going to read all four chapters. Um, believe me, that, that's hard for me not to want to do that, but I also don't want you falling asleep. Um, and, and so we, this section of Exodus um, is stretching, right? It, it, it stretches us. It's, it's been good for me. I was reminded this week, I heard a pastor say, if you don't preach through books of the Bible, you'll only always preach what you already know, right? So you're only going to have the only content you have is the stuff you've already dealt with and know. And so I've had to, to grow and be stretched as I'm studying through the tabernacles. We're studying through the priestly garments because it's not things that, that we preach often. It's not things we talk about often. Um, before we jump into the text, just some kind of brief reminders of, of where we've been, right? That Exodus has had this fast-paced action, right? As it is telling the story of God's rescue of His chosen people, Right out from the hands of one of the world's greatest like historical superpowers in, in Egypt, right? That his his mighty hand is what re- reached down and rescued and moved them. He then takes them into the wilderness where he leads and guides and provides for them in these real and tangible ways, and that they're now camping around Mount Sinai, and it's where they're going to spend almost a year. It's where Exodus will end is with them there around Mount Sinai. And they've received the law, right? They've had the Lord speak and come down on the mountain, and the people have trembled in fear as they looked at His glory falling, and they heard Him deliver the law. And so that section of Exodus just feels big, and it, felt, it feels awesome, and it feels like something you would see in movies, and that's why Hollywood has done a lot of movies in this section. And then we get into to the, the covenant being confirmed, right? And we get into case law and things like that, and it feels like it comes to a bit of a screeching halt. And then even last week, we we were looking at the tabernacle, basically architecture of what it looked like to build that, and yet we see rich theological depth as we look at Jesus in the midst of that. And, And so our prayer is that that would happen with us again this morning. So last week was kind of the first half of this section looking at the building, the tabernacle specifically. This week will be the second half looking at the staff for the tabernacle, right? The priest um, who are going to be Aaron and his sons initially. Um, if you remember with the tabernacle, ultimately the holy of holies, right? The most holy place was set up to be like the throne room of God, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of his throne, And so the whole tabernacle was meant to be this heavenly place, heaven on earth, as God is dwelling amongst His people in camp. 
And that place was the, the most holy, right? It was, it was an extension. It's why the cherubims were guarding it on the veil. It's why they were looking down because His presence would be above the Ark of the Covenant. It's why the mercy seat is covering the law which convicts us from God who is looking down, right? The mercy seat, this picture of Christ. That, that was the holy place. And so the clothing that we're going to look at in, in, look at in chapter 28 is going to be reflective of the idea that this is a heavenly place and a heavenly realm that we're dealing with. It was going to be a stark contrast to the normal attire um, for the average nomadic person, right? And so let's, uh, let's jump into chapter 28. I'm going to read the first five verses here. Um, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons, and with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Verse 2, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, he's speaking to Moses still on Sinai, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. And they will make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And these are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his, so, and his sons to serve me as priest. And they shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Right? So we begin to see some of the same supplies that were going to be used to build the tabernacles, veils, and curtains are going to be also used for the clothing. I want us just first and foremost to note verse 3. Right, like that it is God here who is the provider. So the fact that they have the materials at all to build the tabernacle, to build the clothing, to do those things, is because when they left Egypt, God told them to ask your neighbors, right? And that they basically plundered the Egyptians as they left, that the neighbors gave them these, these riches and things, so that God has provided the material. That he's currently on Mount Sinai, God is showing Moses plans for the clothing and, and for the building. We saw that mentioned five different times last week, that, that he's giving Moses a clear depiction of what he wants. But verse 3 then reminds us that he's not just giving the materials and the plans, that he's giving the skill, the knowledge, the understanding. He says, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments. Chapter 31 basically then pulls out two different individuals, and he says, I've specifically given these men the ability to build and to make and to do these things. Knowledge that they wouldn't have had, skill that they would not have had other than God giving it. And so we then see this list um, in verse 5, verse 4 and 5, of the different items, and the rest of chapter 28 is a description of them. Okay, so you start in verse 15, you work down to 30, and it's just kind of walking through what each of these items would look like. But it's not talking about, like, button-up shirts and ball caps and jeans, right? That we're, those things, we can imagine them if they were even fancy, right? But this is talking about items of clothing that we don't see, that we don't anticipate seeing, that we haven't dealt with. And so um, um, quickly, your mind just kind of shuts off, and you're like, I can't picture it, right? And so it, I want to walk us through these. Um, and, and so, last week was the second time ever I've ever shown a slide at Redeemer in almost seven years. Um, we're going to do it again, right? Are you excited? That's two weeks in a row. We've done it twice ever. We're going to do it two weeks in a row. Um, but Megan, not yet, all right? Okay. I'm going to make you work for it a little bit, 
Okay, so the first piece um, is that we're going to talk about is, is the breast piece, okay? And when you hear that, if, if anything at all comes to mind, you probably think of like more of like a, a, a warrior's thing, something that would cover your chest. That's not what we're talking about, right? It, it was this small rectangular piece, okay? And on it, it would have four gold rings, and on the corners, it would be tied to the ephod, okay? And the ephod is more of like an apron with kind of like overalls, um, Slinged over the sh- I really should not be the one talking about clothing, right? Like, y'all, like, I see, we see how you dress, right? Um, and, but on this breast piece, there were, there were 12 stones. And it goes through and it lists the 12 sto- stones. Some that we know, some that we don't. We see the same stones mentioned in the Garden of Eden, and we also see them in Revelation, right? Like, that God is showing just this consistent thing. He said that I'm supposed to be with you, I'm dwelling with you, and we just see this theme throughout. But these 12 stones that would be on the breastpiece were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That they would go before um, on the priest, that they were near to his heart, that he was there remembering, why am I making these sacrifices? Why am I doing these things? It's because of these tribes that they're represented. The, the, the overall, I shouldn't say overall, but the, the straps that would connect it to the ephod were connected with two stones, onyxes. And on each of those stones were the six, six tribes on each stone engraved, like a jeweler would do. And they would be here, right? This reminder that the reason that all of this is going on is because God has chosen a people, and these people have a name, and that they are being remembered before God. The sacrifices were intentional. They're not just some vague, hey, for anybody who might have sinned. No, it's for these people, these faces, these names, these families in which we are going to do sacrifices and do ministry. Um, the breast piece would have also kind of had, it was like doubled over, and so it was like a pocket. And one of the things that you would see in the pocket was the, the urum and the, the thumb, thumum, okay? We're not exactly sure what those were. Right? Some people want to say it was some sort of like dice that would, you could cast. Maybe it was colored stones. But it was a way for, for God to dictate and to help the, the high priest make decisions. And it would be, it would be there, right, inside that. Um, the reason that Scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail about them is because that's not how we dictate decisions anymore, right? That it's not looking for us to find some sort of biblical um, system to roll dice, um, and so, if you read through the Old Testament, there are multiple stories where religious or political leaders would basically consult the high priest, and the, the Urim and the Thummim would be consulted, and they would believe that that was God speaking through that. It was always done, though, for the benefit of the entire nation. It was not an individual thing. It wasn't like, where should I eat lunch today, right? It wasn't, what should I be when I grow up? It was these big public um, for the people moments, when they were asking God to give direction and guidance to the people. Um, so look at verse 29 and 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron will bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. What we're going to see is that all of these things, that there's, there's depth and there's meaning and there's significance to it. The, the ephod was basically an apron, right, with overall straps. Um, another piece was the robe made in blue. 
right? Again, this kind of reminder of the heavenly realm that had, um, it alternated around the bottom of it, bells and pomegranates, okay? And the bells actually rang. And the bells were there um, to make noise, a reminder that you're in the presence of God, right? This reminder that as you, as you move, as you're making noise and going, why are my clothes making noise? It's because you're not there alone, that you're in the presence of God, that you are serving Him, unless you forget that so that you would, right, take shortcuts and die. We see this in verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die, right? It's just this constant, because remember, they're setting up a system now that's going to be in place for some 1,400 years before Christ, right? That they're going to do the same type of sacrifices and serve the same type of ways, that there's going to be an opportunity um, for routine to set it in its place, to forget that they're serving the holy God, that his presence is near, and they begin to go through the motions, right? Something that we're familiar with, right? That it's easy to go, I just go to church, I just read my Bible, right? Like that our minds can check out. They can disengage. And so he's saying, so for the priests not to do this, when their very lives are at stake, we're going to put bells on, right? As they hear the constant ringing and clanging, that they would remember where they're at and who they are serving. We see the sash that would be around the, the waist is made with fine needlework. And the turban, right, that would be wrapped around the head was going to have a gold plate on it that said, Holy to the Lord. Right, that as they go in, that it's, it's, it's a reminder that holiness is required. It's necessary to go before the Lord in a holy manner. And so it's literally going to be written on the head. We see this in verse 38. Um, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. And it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Right? This idea that anything that's going to be accepted is going to be because it's holy. Right? Which begins to create some concern because we know we're not holy. And yet, that's going to be across his turban. Um, one thing you might notice if, if, if you're really thinking about the outfit going on here is that shoes aren't mentioned. And yet, we've already seen that when Moses walked to the burning bush, right, what did God have him do? He said, remove your shoes because you're on holy ground. So shoes are not a part of the outfit, right, because there it's a reminder that they are on holy ground, that they are meeting with the Most High God. The end of chapter 28, it gets into um, their linen undergarments, okay? And you're like, man, this is getting super specific, right? But remember, the point was that when they were to walk on the altars, right? That they w didn't want anything being exposed, right? No nakedness showing. Why? Because they wanted there to be no whiff of, of sexual impropriety. That all of the neighboring religions, all of the, the Canaanite cults would have had um, sexual activity would have been a part of worship. And in order to avoid that, even a, like an idea that that would happen, they're like, you're going to be covered. Everything is going to be covered. Nothing is going to be exposed so that you are showing that this is a holy place and a holy thing that's taking going forward. Chapter 20, oh, sorry, I said I'd show you a picture. So let's, Megan, let's throw a photo up.
All right, so we don't know. This is not like, it's not a photo of Aaron, okay, if you weren't, if you weren't sure. But this, this would give you at least a, a general idea of kind of what's going on here. You see the, the frontlet, the gold plate on the, on the turban. Um, you see it does kind of look like a smock or an apron, right, with the blue robe, with the bells and the pomegranates around the bottom, um, the breastplate with the, the, the stones on it. So, right, as you're reading through this, this didn't come in your mind. I know that, right, because it didn't come into my mind. And so that's why we're, we're walking through it um, in this, this regard. Okay, in chapter 29, and I know this probably feels a little bit more like a lecture at the moment, but I, I promise we're going we're gonna to get, get there. Um, chapter 29, then, is the focus of after we've done the clothing, we actually have to consecrate. We have to get these guys ready for service. And so the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be three actual sacrifices. In, in 29, in verse 4, let me, let me just read this to you. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, right, to the tabernacle, and wash them with water. And so we have Aaron and his four sons being washed, being cleansed. Verse 5, then you shall take the garments that we've just seen in chapter 28 and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and you'll put the holy crown on the turban and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And so there's going to, in these chapters, then there's a recipe for how to make the anointing oil, right? That this, everything is intentional and it is specific, right? And so it says that, um, and then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. They don't have the frontlet on theirs. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And so there's elaborate ceremony going on where they're washing them and then they're dressing them before the people that they're seeing. These are going to be your representatives before God, right? And this is a heavenly thing. This is a holy thing. But then there's this reminder, right, that we have this altar. And the reason we have an altar in the tabernacle and in the courtyard is this, is because we're sinners. And this is the reason we couldn't go on Mount Sinai, is because we're in need of rescue. We're in need of forgiveness. And so there began to be a series of sacrifices that would take place over the course of seven days. And the first was this, it was a sin offering, where they would take a bull, and these five men would lay their hands on the bull. And as they laid their hands on it, they're saying, I'm, this is me, like I am, my sin is going on this thing. I could, what's going to happen to this bull on the altar should happen to me. And the, the bull would be sacrificed. And then they would take the carcass, and they would burn it outside of the camp. Remember that Jews lived inside the camp, and Gentiles who were with them or those who were currently unclean lived outside of the camp. And they would take the carcass out, and they would burn it. They would say, look, we killed this bull with your hands that were on it as a sin offering because sin needs to be atoned for, and blood is what the payment requires. And then we see a second offering, and this one is not a bull, but it's a ram. And they lay their hands again on the ram. And this one is burnt completely. It's a burnt offering, and it's completely consumed. And the idea was this. For these priests, they're saying, we are fully devoted. There's nothing left. We are giving our entire preoccupation, our entire engagement to you. We're all yours. Look, it's been burned. There's nothing left. We're holding nothing back. We are yours. 
And the third one is also a ram. And this one was a little more, instead of burning all of it, they, were, they would take the thigh, right? And they would take some bread and they would wave these before the Lord. And then they actually would eat from this offering. They would grill the meat and eat it after they've laid their hands on it and it's been sacrificed. And they would take some of the blood and they would put it on their, their right ear and their right thumb and their right toe. What they're saying is this, is we're yours, right? We're gonna, if we're going to fellowship with you, if we're going to eat with you, this is like a peace offering, right? Because we know we need to be at peace with you in order to interact with you. And so as our ear is marked, we're saying like our, our thoughts, our minds are for you. As our hands are marked, the, the work of our hands will be for you. And as our feet are marked, the places we go, like they're saying we're yours, that all of this was to say that there was a lot needed to be done in both clothing and in sacrifices to say, hey, you don't get to just walk into the Holy of Holies. You don't get to saunter in and say, hey, Lord, how's it going? Right? It was saying this is a big deal, a significant thing. Remember, the folks would camp around the tabernacle, which was in the center of their camp. Three tribes on each side. They would see the sights. They would see the animals being let in. They would hear the sounds of animal sacrifice. They would smell the putrid smell of death. The bustling activity would have always been there, a constant reminder that God's presence is near. And then also a reminder that we don't get to just walk before him. Right? Like it would have been this tension of he's here and he's present and he's near and I can't just walk in. So it's both this merciful and gracious thing that they're going to fail and they're not going to keep the law of the covenant which they've confirmed before the Lord, right? And so the altar is there as a place of, of forgiveness. But also, as they see it, there's a, there's a cost. There's death involved. There's blood involved. It's this constant reminder of both the nearness and grace and yet the distance and the requirements. You may feel like this, right? That when you're around the things of the Lord, you feel a little bit distant, when you're around his people or his church, you may feel like you're just kind of like Jesus adjacent, right? Like he's near, but I'm not really there. And you're just hoping something might rub off on you, right? That something might, might get you. And, right, and, and what we see here is that the clothes don't save the priest. That the rituals don't save the priest. He'll end 29 and he says, I consecrate this. It's not y'all who are consecrating it. I will make this holy. I will do this in verse 43. And what they understand is if they get too close and they don't do it in the proper manner, they die. Right? And some of you think, I feel that way. I feel like if I get too close to holy things, if I get too close to God, I know I deserve it, he might kill me. Right? That this doesn't maybe feel as distant as, as, it, as it sounds as we read it. That clothes aren't enough, that religious activity isn't sufficient. And here's the beautiful thing that we saw last week. That then we go to John 1 and we see that it says that Jesus dwelt, that Jesus tabernacled right with us, with his people. That God comes in the flesh to walk among us, to tabernacle without the veil, right? To be with us. But we also see this morning is that Jesus is our high priest and he is a better high priest than Aaron and all those who would follow for 1,400 years. If you turn over... To Hebrews 7, we're going to look at this. How is Jesus the better high priest? One, 
They had many, and they had many for 1,400 years, right? You think about the jobs that you feel like never get done, right? If you're a mom, you think about the laundry that's never done, the house that's never cleaned. Maybe as you go to a job, you're like, this, I can never satisfy them. I can never get it done. There was a priestly system in place for 1,400 plus years with multiple priests, right? And then Jesus walks on the scene, and listen, this is verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is a better priest because it's only one instead of many, because he doesn't die, and they did because they had to make sacrifices on their behalf, and he doesn't. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 tells us that he is the better high priest because he walks into the real thing, right? The tabernacle, the holy of holies in the temple were copies of a heavenly thing made by human hands to try to reflect the glory of God. And yet there is a throne room of God. Look at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right? That the, the high priests were walking into a dangerous place because of God's presence, and it was a copy of the real thing. And it says, and Jesus strides, like he, he walks into the throne room of God in heaven. And he is familiar enough and comfortable enough that he sits down. Right? They walked in with bells to remind themselves of where they were at. And yet Jesus goes into the throne room of God. That it was once and for all that he doesn't continue to make sacrifices. That his death on the cross was it. It satisfies completely the wrath of God on our behalf. And yet they offered sacrifices daily for thousands of years. Right? That his, right? Does that show us the significance of his sacrifice once and for all? Verse 27 Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. When he gave himself as perfect, holy, it was satisfying to God. That it paid what we could not pay with thousands of years of sacrifices. And then verse 12 of chapter 10 says this, if you remember, as we walked through the furniture and the, out, the, the, the look of the tabernacle last week, we saw the table, of the bread of presence. We saw the basin where they washed their hands. We saw a place of incense. We saw the, the menorah, right, the light that was always being lit because God is always worthy of worship and His light is always shining. We saw the Ark of the Covenant. We saw the veil. There was nowhere to sit down, right? There was no, there was no lounge area for the priest. Why? Because the work was never done. There was never a chance for them to sit because there was always something more to be done until Jesus. And look at verse 12 of chapter 10. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Right? Like that imagery should astound us when we look at the Old Testament. This was what they did every day. And then Jesus offers himself on the cross before God on your behalf. 
right? Like our hands on him saying, like, so that we don't have to be sacrificed, he's going to be sacrificed, and then he walks into the throne room of God and sits down because it's done. It's why there's no altar here to be sacrificed this morning. It's why we don't have a line of bulls and rams because it's been done and Jesus, his sacrifice is enough and it is sufficient. And so if we look then back in, in Exodus 30, we see this. We, we, we see this beautiful picture that they're already beginning to lay out of this idea of redemption. And so it has this interesting time where it says, hey, don't take censuses, but if you do and when you must, there's a, a price that has to be paid. And you pay half a shekel of silver, and you take this half a shekel of silver, and you're standing on this side, and then when they number off, when they count you off, you step onto this side, right? And now I'm here, and I've paid my redemption price, right? If I'm going to be a part of what's going on, I have to be redeemed, and there's a cost for that, and then I move on to the other side. Why would, and you're thinking, why would they have to pay to be redeemed in a census? Because of this, because God is in control. And he's saying, I don't want you to trust your numbers. I don't want you to count your army and think that you're mighty and significant. I don't want you to begin to think that in numbers that that's where your strength is because that shows you when you were weak and small, not when you were strong and mighty. I want you to remember who your authority is and I don't want you to begin to have pride in these things. I want you to remember that you were redeemed with a cost, with a price. They then the base of the tabernacle, the foundation of it, where the poles hit the ground, were in silver. Their very reason for worship was that God's presence was dwelling, was covered in silver, the price of their redemption. Folks, the reason we worship this morning is because we can see the price of our redemption in its Christ, right? That you have peace with God, hope with God, joy in God, because He was redeemed. We have been redeemed because he was sacrificed, because he was crushed for your sin. It's like our hands were on him, putting our sin on him, and God crushes him to redeem us. It's why this week, there's reason to meditate. There's reason to ponder and consider the fact that the Palm Sunday is remembering that Jesus walked into Jerusalem being worshiped as King. Hosanna, you're here to save us and that he would be murdered later that week. That he is worthy of worship. And the reason that we do what we do isn't to get more moral people. It is because Jesus is worthy of worship. That the king of the universe is worthy of worship. That he did not leave us to our misery. He did not leave us to our sin where we would be crushed. But that he has come for us and that we want people to know him so that they will worship him because he is worthy of it. So this morning, our heart's desire is that the Lord would open your eyes to see the significance of what he's done, the significance of who Jesus is, that we would see him as worthy of worship, that what he's accomplished wasn't some tried and true and trite thing that we begin to like, just kind of like look at at Easter. Oh yeah, yeah, Jesus and the cross. And that he satisfied the wrath of God that was meant for us. That what happens at the altar is not going to occur to us because of Jesus. That we would remember then in, in Exodus 19 that we're called to be a kingdom of priests. We see this in 1 Peter as well. And so that as we begin to think, wait, we're priests? 
we would remember that Jesus, right, has called us to this, that the people of God were brought out of Egypt. They were rescued, right? And that wasn't it. It wasn't like he brought them out and said, okay, you're free, frolic in the desert. He brought them out so that they would dwell with him, know him, worship him, and the nations would take notice so that they would know and trust and worship God. You are brought out of your slavery to sin as a mercy so that you would know God, that you would dwell with God, his spirit in you, to then worship him so that the nations and your neighbors would take note so that they would know and worship him as well. It's why we bear his image. It's why we reflect him. It's why our worship matters. And so it's why when we sing, we're not just mouthing words to songs. We're saying true things, and we're trying to get our hearts and our minds to remember that these are true things about who our God is. It's why the very lives that we live are worship, that worship isn't simply the songs we sing this morning, but as we leave this place, it's the very lives that we live of saying, I trust the one who's rescued me. And so the way I relate to my children and to my wife the way I know my neighbors, the work ethic and the integrity that I show at work. All of these things, right, are ways of saying I trust God and I'm trying to reflect his image to the world because he is good and he is faithful and he is kind and he is generous and he has been merciful to us. As we look through these sacrifices, would we be reminded that we have been washed in the blood? Right? Like we have been cleansed by blood. We see this in Ephesians 1 and Romans 5, 9, and in John 1, 8. And that Jesus suffered outside the camp. Remember the bull, the sin offering? It says Jesus suffered outside the camp to bring us into the family. That we are clothed in righteousness. Galatians 3, 27 says this. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Right? It's why this morning you're not wearing um, big stones, right? And, and ephods and sashes and turbans, right? You have put on Christ. You have put on righteousness. That when you have been adopted into the family of God, he takes the sin that has stained and marked and marred you. And he puts on the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see sinful you deserving of wrath and death. He sees Christ, the Holy One. And under him, we're safe. With him, we're safe. Because we have been given his righteousness. Right? The priest in their, their fancy garb, it wasn't enough. They still needed a sin sacrifice. Because their clothes couldn't make up for what was going on. Your religious activity will not make up for what's really going on in your heart. You have to be clothed in Christ. It's permanent. It's an exchange. It's why then even the basin was there in the courtyard. Because even though um, they had been washed once and they would not be washed again in the same manner, in the same consecration, they would wash their hands often. This reminder of it's constantly getting on me. Church, we, you are once and for all rescued and saved by God. But as we continue forward in trusting and knowing and following him, sin is going to continue to be an issue until the day we die. Right? That we're continually saying, I want to throw this off. I want the righteousness of Christ. I want to throw this off. I want the righteousness of Christ. That as we're pursuing it, you are rescued and you are saved. 
but the clothes don't hide it, right? If you want to stand before the king without the righteousness of Christ, you will die. You can stand before him in your filthy rags of righteousness and you will die. Or you can exchange that for, the, for righteousness, true righteousness, purity in Christ. You don't get born into that. You're not brought into it through activity. It is through the grace and mercy of God to extend it to you by his mighty hand to rescue you, to adopt you as sons and daughters. And it's why last week we saw that the veil has been torn, that we have access into the throne room of God because of Jesus, that we don't walk in timidly, we walk in boldly and confidently. And it's why we have been given the opportunity to pray. One of the things that you'll see also in this section was that there was um, an incense bowl, that they were constantly offering incense, and there was a recipe for the incense, and it says it was pleasing to God to smell it. It also covered up the smell of the putrid smell of death. But those prayers, that incense, is, is symbolic of our prayers. Listen to Revelation 5. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Thinking back to the tabernacle, which are the prayers of the saints. And then chapter 8, verse 3. And when another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, on the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. You see, the imagery is tying back together that he says, here's how I come and I'm going to dwell with you. And in the end, right, that this incense that's going up, is, it's your prayers, right? That, that when we come to God and act, like with the access that Jesus has given us, when we pray and we interact with him, it is incense, right? It's coming before him and it's pleasing to him because you're revealing worship and trust and faith and hope that he is who he says he is. And it's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. Because the reason that you have that access, the reason that you can boldly go, the reason you can offer your prayers as incense is because Jesus, his sacrifice has made it right. He has torn down the dividing wall. He has torn down the veil. And so we say, God, I'm offering this incense, this prayer to you, not because of what I've done, but in Jesus' name. Because he's accomplished it, right? It's like the bells reminding us of why, right? It's not this rote thing of that's how you end prayers. It is this rich and deep and meaningful thing. And so this morning, you have the opportunity, right? For those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who have put on his righteousness, for those of you who have been adopted into the family as sons and daughters, right? Then you get to boldly, confidently walk before God. And you get to fellowship at the table with him because of his sacrifice, his body broken, his blood spilled. And so this morning, I'm, I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna enter a time of worship, right? Where we would sing to this king who has rescued you. And at any point during these songs, you're free to get up um, as an individual or as a family um, and go back and take um, the Lord's Supper, his body broken, his blood spilled. But it's for those who trust that. 
it is, there's nothing magical about what's going on there. It's not a moment where, where that occurs and you're like, now something has fallen on me. It's because you trust that that's why you have hope. It's why you have peace. It's why you know Jesus, right? It's why you will not die in your sin before him because you've been clothed in his righteousness. And so we do that with seriousness, knowing we see the significance in, in Exodus that they couldn't just walk before God. And we do, would we not take that for granted because of what Jesus has accomplished for us? There'll be men and women in the back of the room ready and willing to talk, to pray with you if you'd like to do that as well. Let's pray.